in my experience, oftentimes pastors use the concept of series sermons um, because what that means they get to do is they get to plan what they're going to do for the next six months. Coming from somebody who's who studied homiletics and hermeneutics, it's a very lazy way to preach. Sorry, it's just the reality. Why? Well, because it's easy to... If you know that for the next six months we're going to be talking about hope, then I don't have to worry about I mean, I know what we're talking about. It's super easy. And I've always felt like that the challenge, not while well, that's not always the case, the challenge is that the um, um, when you do that, it actually causes there to be a feeling that you, you really lose the ability oftentimes um, to allow the Lord to do freshly whatever it is He wants to do. And so um, I don't do that very often. That is what we're going to be starting tonight, though. We're going to be doing a series, um, if you will, uh, on revival that remains. So probably the next four to five weeks or four to five services that I speak anyway, that's what we'll be looking at is the concept of how do we make what it is he's doing sustainable. Um, So through my life, And to be honest with you, I've uh, not only experienced a lot of different moves, I've read, I, I, most of you know this about me, but I love to study church history, I love to study revival history, and um, I wouldn't say I've given myself to that, because I, I'm certainly not a scholar, but it's something that since the time, I think I, I, I remember starting to read revival books when I was like, you know, in grade school. Um, that's just, I've always had a heart to understand and to really kind of um, hear what he's saying and see what he's done. Um, and you find that within that, there, there is a tendency that it tends to be seasonal. So visitations from God tend to have what I would call an expiration date, is the way we have viewed them. Where it's not, it's very rarely something that becomes not only sustainable, but also an inheritance. The, 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 the thing he has put on our heart here is, how do we actually take this visitation and cause it to be something that never stops? And also something that increases. So over the next several weeks, we're going to look at, tonight is going to be more or less just setting the stage, if you will. Um, but over the next several weeks, we're going to look at what is our role in creating an environment where 50 years down the line, we're not only still experiencing visitation and revival like we have, but it's actually increasing. And if I can say this, he actually has said directly to us that he wants us to be the first people ever, maybe not just us, but this generation, people that are alive right now, to be the first people ever that experience a revival or a visitation that can be passed to another generation. You've, you, it's never happened before. We've got two choices. We can either, one, say that it's never happened before historically, so that must be that God doesn't do it that way. Or we can look at it and say, the nature of God means this, and I'm going to contend until I get how He does things, not how it's always happened before. Okay? So, i got a little bit I'm going to read to you first. <clears throat> God is helping us to understand this new place or dimension He has called us to walk in. One of the things we have to understand is that as this shift takes place, it will actually empower us to live according to a different set of rules. What I mean by that is that things that were difficult for us in the last season will not be difficult for us now. I mean that if we saw healing and provision monthly, we will now be seeing it weekly. We've understood this principle in the natural. Gravity, I mentioned this, I think, on Sunday. Gravity is relative in this atmosphere, but if you move past the Earth's atmosphere, it is no longer relevant. What we are learning is 
that he's bringing us past the atmosphere of what church or religion is supposed to look like into a place where real relationship with God and the family we have found in him allows us to float around the room or to move outside of the laws that the previous dimension has restricted us by. In this new dimension, we are breaking into a place where he's going to change how we have been affected. This is similar to the transition from Moses striking the rock to the place where we speak to the rock. How many know that within that reality, Moses, at the second time he visited the rock in, in the wilderness, there was a thought of, it, it, it's very easy for us to fall back upon how God has done it before because that process and that principle works. He's trying to take us past what has worked in, in the past into something that by obedience and surrender has never happened before. You can never just know this as a law of the Spirit. You can never expect to get to a place that's never been experienced before by doing what's done been done before. You can never, there's an easier way to say that. You can never expect to get to a place that's never been experienced before without first experiencing things that have never been experienced before. It's just that simple. You can't drive on the same road that you drive on every day and not expect to get to the same destination. It just doesn't work that way. <clears throat> Within my life, my favorite moments have always been times when God is moving to the degree that we all accept that we cannot contain it, we cannot direct it, and we can't take credit for it, but we are all working to move with Him wherever He wants to go because of our hunger for Him. Historically, now this is going to set kind of the stage for what we're going to talk about tonight, so we're getting ready to make a jump here. Historically, you find the pattern of visitation or outpouring goes this way. It begins with great hunger for Him. Great hunger for God brings great breakthrough. Great breakthrough into visitation brings great success. Great success requires that people create systems or processes, maybe even institutions, that will facilitate the great breakthrough. This should work, should work, like the banks of a river to steer or direct what is happening. This is all done with good intention, but eventually those banks begin to be impoundments and act as barriers that will not allow him to do what he wants. This is when we start erecting monuments to the banks and not tabernacles that he abides within. Tragically, the next generation, this is the point, the next generation comes along and their job is to serve the organization or the monument that was created in the memory of the great move of God. This process has to be changed. That somewhere between the banks of the river being established to facilitate the great breakthrough and the, uh, the monument that's created as a, as a result of what he wants to do, we somehow find hunger again. So the cycle actually comes to the point that it should be great hunger brings great breakthrough. Great breakthrough brings great success, and great success leads us back into great hunger. Because if not, what happens is the next generation, so if you look at any church right now that has actually experienced a, 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 a viable revival, something that's been written about, a, a real revival, if you look at it, the next, the thing that nine times out of ten stops the next generation from being able to accept it is because churches come great. So you have this process. Hunger always initiates it. Everything God does starts with hunger. Just know that. Everything God does starts with hunger. So as a result of that, hunger births a breakthrough. In the midst of a breakthrough, when you start seeing the things like we've been seeing, do you realize if what you've been experiencing made it to the news, life as we know it would change? I hope you understand this. If, if what you have been experiencing, what we have seen, where people are being healed and changed and delivered and touched, their lives are being changed, people are coming off of medicine and we're not even praying for I mean, this kind of stuff that he's doing... 
it all it takes is a drop of success to change our to change everything. And I think it's by His hand that He is protecting us. I, I'm very I'm very sincere about that. I honestly believe that if if I've never cried out for God to not do something, but I have cried out to God to keep us hidden. I've never asked God to let up on the miraculous. I've never asked God to let up on the things that He's doing that seem to be absolutely outlandish. But I have asked Him to keep us hidden in the midst. Why? Because as soon as revival transitions into lines, we then have to create processes and systems to facilitate the, the, the volume of people or the change in the environment. No longer does it work where anybody can walk up to anybody and lay hands on them in the middle of prayer time and you guys go after the Lord together because you don't know who's walking in the door. Things change. Not everybody that walks in the door is well-intentioned. I'm just being honest. All, you can't right now, if at any point in the middle of the service somebody had a word from the Lord, they would, they would more than likely, um, you know, and I'm not necessarily saying you need to do this, but we would honor it if somebody raised their hand and said, hey, I feel like the Lord wants me to share this. We would honor it and move forward. Now, if it was out of line or if it was somehow wrong, we would address that, of course. But in reality, within the family we've created, we've created safety and trust and honor so that people can feel safe to do things that make them vulnerable. Part of the challenge comes when success happens, it's very easy for us then to allow our hunger for Him to be sacrificed upon the throne of the processes by which the success is carried. Does that make sense? Because if not, it really does turn into pandemonium. I mean, it really does. It gets. It, I, I've been to some big churches where God's really been moving and, and tons of people are showing up and they've made up their mind that they're not going to do anything to change anything. It's a circus. I mean, it really is a circus. It gets way out there. Um, and and I'm not saying that that, that is the, the worst thing that can happen. But, but I also know that without banks, there is no river. That's the point, is with as soon as the banks go away, the river at the next property over doesn't provide water. So what we do is it becomes necessary for us to have process, which is the banks of the river. The challenge comes, though, is as soon as we start doing things like that, we make those banks, not as soon. The challenge comes when following that phase of the cycle, if you will, is that we start to put other things as more important than hunger for Him. As soon as the process by which we facilitate what it is He's doing miraculously becomes the focus of our time together and not hunger for Him, we start creating monuments to our prophetic worship. We start creating monuments to our teachings. We start creating monuments to our prayer times. We start creating monuments that we use to measure how powerful it is and how um, whether this is better than this. The challenge that then comes is it becomes that is the death knell to the next generation being able to accept it. The reason is because the next generation is coming in with hunger, we're saying your hunger's fine as long as it honors our monuments. The reality of it is, hunger will be evidenced as Jesus turning over tables every time. You realize there's a lot of ways you can translate Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. First of all, he did it twice. But there's a lot of things that you can that you can point out within that. But but the the, the thing that in the most natural, elementary, basic sense, going and you know me, I love like when my father's house to be a house of prayer for many nations, all that kind of stuff. I love all that stuff. But you realize it was a flat out protest. 
shut down business. Why? Because they were doing what was legal. There wasn't anything that, that was happening within the temple that was illegal. Everything that was happening was absolutely legal in every regard. What Jesus did was protest what it had become. And he shut down the temple, literally shut down the temple, in very protest-like fashion. I mean, obviously, we recognize the Martin Luther King anniversary. You realize Jesus was absolutely a protester. Absolutely. Why? Think about this. What happens when all of the money tables get turned over and all of the animals that are to be used as sacrifices get ran? Do you realize that the whip wasn't to be violent? The whip was because he drove out the animals. He wasn't threatening. We think that it's an excuse for that, that we can then get okay with the fact that sometimes when we get angry, we tend to throw things. It's like, well, Jesus took a whip. Well, that's true. But he wasn't throwing the whip around at people. We totally missed the point of that. That was not Jesus' step outside of pacifism. It just wasn't. And what that was is he drove out the cattle. He drove out the lambs. He drove out the goats. Why? Good luck having an open temple with no animals to sacrifice. He literally shut down business. Every time a new generation comes, it's going to come smack against the monuments and the models that we have created where the banks that were supposed to continue to usher him in in greater fashion. Because good banks swell when the river gets bigger. That's the way it works. Believe me, I know. We've had a little bit of water. We've got a creek that flows uh, under our road on the way to the house, and we've got a creek behind the house. Both of those suckers look like the Nile. I mean, it's like I didn't know that that this could happen. And what oftentimes, if you if you read any about about how um, whatever that is, uh, if you read about how that works, what they actually say is you want to guard over those banks because what will happen is washouts will happen, and it will actually become a detriment to the river. But the, the banks do have the ability to expand, to facilitate what the river is doing. The challenge comes when that next generation comes along and, and is experiencing hunger for God. That is why deconstruction is the process by which we come into being somebody that is a reformationist. Reformation starts with deconstruction every time. And I don't know if we're all comfortable with this, but the reality of it is, for those of us who've been the champions of faith before, that's not the easiest thing. It's just not. I'm cool with your hunger as long as you do it like this. That's the way it's always been. So that's one of the reasons why you've never seen it happen before. And part of the reason is because we have always trained. So there's two... I'm getting way ahead of myself. But that's okay. We've, there really is two principles or processes that is, are agreed upon that we view how God does things. I'm going to read a little bit of this, but there's two schools of thought regarding the outpouring or moves of God. The first is that all moves of God are sovereign. Now, bear with me as I get through these, because if you, if you latch on, you will say, aren't they sovereign? And did you just name you? Yes, but hear me. All moves of God are sovereign. This means that God chooses the seasons in which to move. It's true the moves of God are sovereign. However, I don't like the idea that there are seasons for what was meant to be continuous. The challenge is if you go all in on the idea that the moves of God are always sovereign and that He chooses the seasons in which He moves then you've removed all responsibility that we have to be a partner in it, and we just think it's the roulette wheel of when God decides to show up, and we never really embrace the fact that, scripturally speaking, it is supposed to be continuous, not seasonal. What does it say about Jesus that was supposed to have changed everything? Of the what of his government? 
increase of his government, there will be no end. That's supposed to be the model for how God moves. It's designed to always be increasing and never stopping. The model that, that some of we have used this as a crutch to say God just does what he wants when he wants. Because he's sovereign. The challenge with that is it's an excuse to live an existence that allows the church, much like it's done, to experience visitations that are more or less shots in the arm for six or eight, ten months, two years, four years, that it's a shot in the arm because God's sovereign, and then we live off of that meat for for the next 20 years. Why do you think that the assembly of God still won't identify the fact and, and really embrace... Let me just back up. The assembly of God had a really unique, uh, what I would call an identity crisis when Brownsville happened. The assembly of God at large, I mean, the denomination, um, and that's why I was born and raised in the assembly of God, so this is, this is me talking about my own upbringing. But the Assembly of God experienced an identity crisis. The reason they experienced an identity crisis is they were birthed out of the 1900s Azusa Street Revival. They considered themselves to be the bastions of revival and outpouring um, when it comes to denominationalism. The problem is when Brownsville happened and came to an Assemblies of God church, it didn't look anything like Azusa Street. So they couldn't figure out if they wanted to claim it because it further... Um, it further um, aided to justify the fact that the Assemblies of God was the denomination for revival, or if they wanted to shun it because it didn't look like revival had looked before. If you've been around, don't shout me down because I'm preaching real good. That's just what happens. And so what that sovereign thing of God does is says, it's, it's, it's this thing that he does something. And tell me if you haven't experienced some of the most powerful things I've ever experienced. How many times have we experienced six-month outpourings here where God just does ridiculous, incredible stuff? I remember times where I was getting calls and texts from people who were coming here because it was their week to clean, and they would open the door and fall on their face because the power of the Lord was so strong. That's ridiculous. But then it would lift. So what our answer always was is, well, we just need to be faithful and we just need to, to continue to do what he's called us to do and seek his heart and know that we're to stand in his purpose. That's all true. That's all true. But that's also like saying that we, we, we're just going to you know, go buy $10,000 worth of groceries and then eat on the same spam for the next 15 years. You know, it's no different. Why do we actually think that that's acceptable? Because as soon as we do that, we have forfeited hunger. That's always the point. The second school of thought regarding the outpouring of visitations of God is that um, it is something that is, um, says essentially that we're the ones that bring about the move of God. So you have one school of thought that's God completely sovereign. He does what he wants when he wants you have another school of thought that says we bring it about. The challenge with that is that it can become, excuse me, become too man-centered. We find this with doctrines that say if we fast enough, repent enough, or get holy enough, God will come. The challenge I have with revival that comes out of repentance is as soon as we run out of things to repent for, we end revival. That's why I was taught that you have to continue to find new things to repent for. I remember a time in my life where I was so hungry for the Lord, I thought the only thing God, the only thing that would make God come was um, repentance. What I would do is, I remember repenting for things I hadn't even done. I was repenting for sins I hadn't committed yet. Why? Because I thought that's what would make God come. I thought repentance somehow qualified me. The issue that I have with the repentance revival is repentance revival is never, ever scripturally sound when it says you have to be clean enough for God to come. 
it's always sound when it says, when you see him, you want to be made like him. I actually have heard people say that they, they there are documented revivals that I've heard people say that as soon as the church ran out of things to repent for, that the spirit lifts. I absolutely reject that idea. I absolutely, why? Because most of what that tells us is that that's, and that's why we've come up with, why do you think we have lists, holiness lists? Why does, why do these things exist? Because we've said that it's our responsibility to make God do something. What I do believe within that is there are elements of truth to this principle, but we literally tiptoe the line of manipulating God to do whatever we want when we live with the idea that I can make God move. We also live oftentimes robbed of the continuous outpouring that God wants us to live in if we say he only does what he wants to do when he wants to do it because he gets in the mood. Both of those all in are not balanced. Remember a few, uh, maybe two years ago, a year ago, we studied something that is um, uh, found within Eastern religion. I won't tell you which one, so you just assume it's Christianity. Um, that uh, this phrase is nitty nitty, and what that phrase means is it's not this or that. And part of what the issue, part of the issue we have in our Christian culture is that we are very black and white. It's never yes and; it's either or. And so, what he's trying to get us to understand is yes. Every move of God is sovereign. I can't make him come in some manipulative fashion, but I do have a responsibility to position my heart. And the idea of this is that it's like using the river analogy again. It would be like there's this river that's rushing, and I'm standing on the banks of the river crying out to God that he would pour out upon me all the while I'm standing next to the river because he's never stopped pouring out upon humanity. The idea is that in many, 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 many cases, it does, do you realize, and man, if there was, if there was Facebook around like, like a hundred years ago, some of the guys that we call the champions of faith, just, can you imagine if Smith Wigglesworth Live was on Facebook Live? Like somebody live tweeting Smith pulling somebody out of a casket would not go over well. Um, and so uh, one of the things that Smith Wigglesworth said, and, and this is the thing that people would crucify him for now, but one of the things that he said, if God isn't moving in the service, I'll move him. That sounds really presumptuous. What his point was, he understood that what God required or what God wanted was a sacrifice that he could let his fire fall upon. So his point was, if people are, if the room of people is unwilling to be the, the sacrifice, I'll climb on the altar so that the fire of God will come. You get it? That's the thing. So we are going to get to some scripture. Um, so before we take the um, this jump tonight, first of all, there's a couple things I wanted to mention that. Um, read this phrase a couple weeks ago, and I really liked it. What you know can keep you from what you need to know if you don't remain a novice. What you know can keep you from what you need to know if you don't remain a novice. If we don't, uh, if we don't stay hungry for Him more than anything else, the, the, once again, we talked about how many times childlike wonder. How do we come before Him and be those that are poor in spirit? If we don't understand that as soon as you become an expert in the things of God, you've chosen where to plateau. As soon as you think you've arrived, as soon as we give up our badge that says, I am a novice at this, God is still God. We give up that hunger, that passion that says, Father, I just want you and I don't care what it looks like. It doesn't have to happen like this. It doesn't have to happen in the way it's happened before. I just want you to come. And the reality of it is, when we do that, we forfeit the posture that allows us to welcome the kingdom of, excuse me, the kingdom of heaven. Um, so, 
the last thing I'm going to say before we start scripture, um, before we take the jump, we need to understand that a principle that directs our approach to the things of change, uh, things of the kingdom, and it actually directs our approach to the way we should understand scripture. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15. I, I'm not going to pull that up, and you don't have to teach your sheets tonight, but just note that in your brain. This, the principle is this. First the natural, then the spiritual. Let me, let me explain what I mean by that. As an example, if we sow apple seeds, we will reap apples. We know that. That's a natural understanding. Jesus would regularly use natural understandings, and then he would follow that up with a spiritual explanation of that. So, if we sow apple seeds, we will reap apples. We can follow this spiritually with the understanding that if we show mercy, we will receive. All right, that was, I didn't feel like a very big jump for everybody, but uh, we're just going to keep working on it. If we give mercy, we will receive mercy. Right. Okay? So the scripture teaches us that it is oftentimes there will be natural things that, that are indicated. In the Old Testament, you had a lamb that was a sacrifice. That lamb that was a sacrifice was not something that dealt with sin permanently, but it actually just postponed the punishment for sin for another year. Jesus then comes. He's called the what of God? The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. First natural, then spiritual. You find this all throughout life. One of the things that we want to look at today is the idea... That, um, that when you look at the scriptures, in the Old Testament, rain always spoke of blessing, promise, fruitfulness, things of that nature. In the New Testament, rain speaks more readily of his presence and his, uh, the outpouring of who he is. Rain in the Old Testament, natural, is blessing and, and what God does. New Testament, we believe, how many times have we cried out, Father, send your rain, pour out upon us. So, I'd like to look at this passage, and then we're going to talk about it a little bit. Uh, Genesis chapter 7, verse uh, 11. In the 600th year of Noah's life, Jesus old, in the second month, the 17th day of the month, the same, um, the same day were all the fountains of the great deep broken up, and the windows of heaven opened. Okay, so, a couple things we need to, to mention here. We find that the fountains of the deep were broken up. And interestingly enough, one of the things that I had never seen, we don't have time to get into how this, some of this stuff works, because this I find this stuff really cool. This is the stuff that I read about it here and there. So when you see this, the first thing to understand is that the fountains of the deep were broken up and the windows of heaven poured out. Okay? So the first thing that you have to understand is, up until that point, it had never rained, ever. There had been no rain. Everybody just thinks that when Noah happened, there was just a whole bunch of rain. No, the reason everybody thought he was crazy is because there had never been moisture that fell from the sky. The way that the earth was watered or kept um, living was that moisture would come from the ground. There would also be dew that would come through the air, but not necessarily in precipitation fashion. Okay? I'm not Chuck Wasserman, but I, I just can tell you. Okay? Um, and so when you see here this thought that the fountains of the deep were broken up, it literally is talking about that the, the aquifers, the literal aquifers of the earth that God had positioned. Here's, here's a really good question. Had God ever intended for it to rain? Perhaps you've messed with your intel. I'll stop there. So... When you're thinking about his intention for however long, we don't know how many hundreds of years. Right? I know it's only a couple pages. So we're all, we're Genesis 7, we're like, oh, that's only like two pages. Well, that's great. How long was Adam here before the fall? Always. Right? We don't know. So for however long, God had supplied for the earth. Here's another question for you. So people say that the earth is however many millions or billions of years old, right? And then you've got all the creation people that freak out and say that the, they put a date on it and they say that it's only like 600 years old. Uh, but they say, 
years old, not billions of years old? My answer is yes. You want to know why? Because they can use carbon dating to tell that some of this stuff is, is millions of years old. But who said that God created the earth new? Did God create Adam a baby? It's really simple. So maybe the Rockies, maybe he wanted them to look the way that they would have looked if they were 50,000 years old when he created it new. He can do whatever he wants. So when you see this through the years, you would find that the idea of this, this opening is that there's a connection between what he's invested into the earth and what he pours out from heaven. And that literally the fountains of the deep were broken up and the windows of heaven opened. There's a connection between brokenness and heaven opening, always. Let me put it this way to you. That's why poor, the poor will always welcome revival. Doesn't always mean the economically poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for what will they inherit? The kingdom. The kingdom's going to come. What does heaven opening do? The kingdom comes. It descends. So brokenness or being poor in spirit is always a prerequisite. One of, in my opinions, the biggest issue with what happens in revival cultures or outpourings where God begins to do things is we lose our brokenness because we become very well acquainted with how God does things. It's very difficult for me to look at myself and find me whenever I think I already understand. So, if you want to actually be in a place that perpetually welcomes open heavens, you have to perpetually stay in brokenness. If you stop being vulnerable, you will stop experiencing open heaven, period, at the end of that sentence. As soon as you stop being a novice, as soon as you stop being somebody that says, God, I'm breaking everything I have so that you can come. That was Smith Wigglesworth's point. His point was, I will be the one that climbs on the altar and becomes the sacrifice. David actually goes as far as to say that that's defined as praise, and any praise that he gives to God that doesn't cost him everything is a price that's not worthy of him. So, when you see this, it, it starts with that. Do you realize that when Jacob's ladder happens, one of the things that's really cool about the Bethel experience with Jacob's ladder is it says that the ladder went from earth to heaven? That's weird. Like, if I was writing the story, how would the ladder work? Heaven to earth. Why? Because the principle is this, that God, heaven, responds to things that happen here. Do you realize that so much of the principle of how God does things, we've said this for years, everything God does begins with a voice. That's why as soon as we stop positioning our hearts to cry out for Him in need, in brokenness, saying, God, we need you to come. We, what we have is great, and we could live on the meat of this for the rest of our lives, but it's not enough. I'm living in the dreams of yesterday, but I'm living those dreams today, but I've dreamed since then, and today will never do. As soon as we start saying, what I have now is a fulfilling of the dream, and there's no need to dream again, we've stopped becoming those that our deep place is broken up so that heaven can open. What does it look like for us? Why, if God wants to pour out rain, does he tell you to become a spring out of your belly that brings living water? Because he wants to break open the deep places and the heaven open. The earth flooded from here and there. That alignment is what brought the flood. Now here's the jump. Are you ready? The jump is this. If in the original, in the Old Testament, the original flood where the earth flooded came as a result of, of extreme sin, extreme, um, extreme everything, wickedness, and that it was used for deconstruction, it was used for destruction, is it not possible that the New Testament outpouring where the flood comes, where, as it says, His glory is to cover the earth like what? 
the waters cover the sea. If his intention is to do that, is it possible that the original flood that covered the earth is for destruction? The New Testament promise where his, the waters cover the earth are for reconstruction. Is it possible that in the Old Testament, the natural first, then the spiritual example is that brokenness, he broke open the places of the deep. Literally, the pockets, the pools, the aquifers opened up in the earth and it flooded from the ground up and from the sky down. And now what he's wanting to do, he did that in order to destroy, literally destroy. You want to look at something cool? If you look here at later in Genesis, I've never seen this before. How many know about the promise that says you'll never flood the earth again? How many know that that's not actually what it says? That's not what it says. It says you'll never destroy with a flood again. never says you'll never flood the earth again. It just says it's going to be a different kind of flood. That's the, that's the idea. His covenant with us is that he would never destroy, use waters to destroy it. Why? Because the waters he's wanting to do as a result of him coming are going to be to build something. Literally speaking, the waters of us breaking and the deep place within us where we position our heart in vulnerability actually is supposed to be a place where we come before him and we pour out of who we are. The heavens open as a result of that. And literally the glory of the Lord covered the whole earth as the waters covered the earth in the Old Testament. That's what it's supposed to look like. And the reality is, it begins, I keep going back to this because it's important, it always begins with brokenness. It may be that those that are poor in spirit, uh, it may be, we literally, one of the things that is cool to understand is to look culturally, almost every time there was a culture, uh, a, uh, an all-encompassing revival, okay, where we're talking about thousands or countries. You realize there was a revival that happened in Hawaii? Um, uh, about 150 years ago, where literally everybody, but about uh, they they estimate between five and ten people, everyone else got saved. There was a revival in Alabama that happened, where they estimate that 80 percent of the entire state accepted the Lord. Like that's the kind of stuff he wants to do. When the Welsh revival happened, they say 90% of the entire country accepted the Lord. Why? Because people were willing to be broken. His glory opened up, and the heavens opened in response to it. And it met here. Why? Because his intention is the glory would cover the earth. That's what it's supposed to look like. So when you see this promise, it's not that he's saying he'll never flood again. It's just saying it's going to be a different kind of flood. It's going to be a flood that remains. It's going to be a flood that comes out of that place of who he is. The challenge, though, is if we don't, if we don't come before the Lord in crying out out of being poor and broken in spirit, we, we've got to recognize that if we don't cry out effectively out of need, the cry will only, at that point, if it's only form, if us telling God, I need you more than anything, is only form, is only tradition, it is insufficient. It even may be a new expression of God, I need you more than anything. But if it's not truly out of brokenness, that's the idea. And, some, and I'm just going to be honest with you. I never really understood what it meant that I would want him more than anything until now. I lived my entire life feeling like an absolute hypocrite because I would say that in worship songs and I knew it wasn't true. So I lived, you know, that's a wonderful, you know, thing to feel while you're leading people in worship is absolute deprecation and shame. Worship is You know? That's literally where I would just live. And, and I, I understand, I'm actually finding a place. Do you realize 
how messed up it is that in one passage Jesus says that if any man that doesn't love his brother and says he loves God is a liar, and yet another passage he says any man that loves his father or mother more than me isn't worthy of me. So what he actually says, the tension between those two ideas is that if our love for him is not reflected outwardly, then it's we're a liar. We don't speak the truth. It actually says the truth is not found within us. That's nice. Uh, or the flip side of this is that we then, in some ways, how can we actually get to a point where we become so hungry for him, perpetually speaking, that with every outpouring, it actually drives us deeper into hunger, not more into being satiated. All right, we're going to make a go. So, when you look at this, um, it really does bring the understanding. Once again, the fountains of the deep open out of brokenness. All right, so we're going to look quickly at Psalms 84. This is one of his favorite psalms, and we're going to try to do better. So Psalms 84, um, verse 5. This is one of my favorite um, favorite passages. There's a lot of things I like about it. But specifically, blessed is the man that whose strength is in you, whose heart are in the way are the ways of him. Excuse me, verse 6. Who passing through the valley of Baca, which that word Baca just means evil, okay, um, makes it a well. The rain also fills the pools. They go from strength to strength. Every one of them in Zion appears before God. Now, it's a really cool passage. But when it talks about the, the valley of weeping, that they would, every man whose strength is in the Lord, that as a result of the weeping, when we go through this, it actually says that pools come up from the ground and rain comes down. It reminds me, and it may not you, but it reminds me immediately, it, Psalms 125, I think it, yeah, 126, excuse me, of the passage that says, those that sow in tears will reap in joy. Has that verse ever messed with you? Just absolutely messed with me. I've never figured that out. Because the last thing, if I'm like, the last thing I'm thinking about is joy. I read a story about 10 years ago um, that I was reminded of today, a missionary story, that um, when this has been, I don't know, about, um, it may have been when we were still with the assembly, but um, we used to get missionary newsletters. Do you guys remember those? Where they would send, you know, reports back, and we would, they'd put them out in the, in the vestibule um, so that we could look at it and make sure that we felt like we were getting our $2 a month worth. And, um, and so, it's a joke. It's a joke. Um, and uh, so, I remember reading a story with one of these missionaries, and he said that he had found, finally found and understood in Africa what sowing in tears and weeping in joy meant. And he said that what he found when he went to a small village was that there was a woman that he watched, and she had some... Um, some grain or seeds or some type of, of, um, of food of some kind, and that she didn't have anything for her to eat. She had at the time, now I don't remember, I don't know what they're called, you guys know, but those things that you wrap around yourself that you put the baby in, she had her baby on her back or on, on her somehow, and uh, the papoose thing, and she was digging in the ground and weeping because she had no food to eat, but she was sowing the grain so that her child in the future would have food to eat. Those that sow in tears reap joy. What is it that as a parent could bring you greater delight than seeing your children have what you didn't have? There is something that happens when we as individuals in the midst of great challenge find the ability to say thank you. There is something, I, I don't even understand it, I don't even pretend or begin to understand it, but the idea is that in, in, in this thought of, of gosh, uh, honestly, the best way I can describe it is this, in the face of of it seeming like 
the, the aspect of his nature that has been the most violated is his faithfulness for you to thank him for faithfulness. That's what this is about. So how is it, you want to know what the brokenness oftentimes where we come through the valley of weeping. Do you realize that Paul wrote Philippians, which is that um, rejoice, and again I say rejoice, uh, all of the joy business that we find in the book of Philippians. Do you realize that he didn't just write that in a dungeon, he wrote that in a hole in the ground in a dungeon. The joy of the Lord is my strength means something different there than it does for those of us who are going to go sit on our couch. And so how do we get to a point where in the face of great challenge, where it seems like the the, the circumstances itself are, are glaring us in the face, challenging specifically the nature of God as good and faithful, how do we continue to be thankful and offer before Him praise in the valley of weeping, knowing that if you will, the tears literally allow the aquifer to open up where the glory of the Lord comes and the heavens open. That's what it says in Psalm 24. I'll read it to you again. It says, uh, Psalms 84, excuse me, those that pass through the valley of weeping and make it a well, the rain also fills the pools and it allows them to go from strength to strength. So the idea of this opening that he's doing, so much of our responsibility is to stay before him in thanksgiving and to say, Father, even in the face of what seems like an absolute assault on your faithfulness, I will call you faithful. Because it's not what you do, it's who you are. And in the midst of that, we offer ourselves, we, I'm not talking about what it sounds like I'm talking about is the removal of pain. You don't sow tears when you're not in pain. I'm never criticizing pain. I'm never criticizing you feeling how you're feeling. I'm not talking about mind over matter where you just talk yourself into being happy. What I'm talking about is even in the midst of great challenge, in the midst of great pain, that you decide to more so eat from his goodness than eat from your lack. That you determine more so to eat of who he is than to eat of what you're feeling. And in the midst of that, there is a brokenness that literally causes heaven and earth to respond. And I I know this sounds like I'm talking about manipulating God. I can honestly tell you I'm not. This is not something where it's like, if I just say, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus enough times, all of a sudden we're going to get the goosebumps. What I'm talking about is a lifestyle where we actually have the authority and where we have the principles and where we have the understanding to be able to not live subject to our circumstance. But we actually have the authority to, rather than being the thermometer, we can be the thermostat, where we change the environment by how we we operate and that we don't allow those things to distract us in that way. One of the notes that I made here is, there's a notion that God is moved by human need. That's really not accurate. Now, human need always touches the heart of God because He's compassionate and He's a God of love. However, if human need is the thing that attracted God, then the poorest countries in the world tonight would be the richest countries in the world tomorrow. It's just that way. So, the Bible teaches that specifically he gives bread to the eater. Okay? So here's the point. There is a difference between someone who is hungry and someone who is without. There is. There is a difference between someone who doesn't have something and someone who's hungry. Someone who's hungry will eat when there's bread given. Many times, those who are without will continue in the face of bread or provision being given to continue to look at what they don't have rather than eating what's been provided. 
so the point is, how do we position ourselves to be only in that way? How do, what did Paul say? I've learned to be content in all things. So only in that regard can this Sunday, maybe the, maybe worship was 20 minutes long, last Sunday it was two and a half hours long, and us be absolutely okay with both. Because Him coming is the point. That's the difference between us being a people who are hungry and us being a people who are without. And so what you find is He doesn't respond to human need. He responds and gives bread to the eater. Then as a result of that, we see these, these times where so many times it drives me crazy where people will stand in the face of lack or need and cry out to God of why they don't have something and never actually get into a point where they begin to give God thanks for what He's done, knowing that He's the provider, knowing that He's going to take care of them. You see this with, uh, I made this note, I'm going to use money as an example only right here. Give me a 20-minute window. It's not like using money, but it's, it works in this regard. Um, as an example, when you see this, one of the things that has happened is that there are many times that people are blessed in spite of the lack of their generosity. Okay? Financially. I've seen it before where people are blessed in spite of the lack of generosity. But I have never found a time when someone isn't blessed as a result of their generosity. Say it again. I've seen it when people are blessed who aren't generous. But I've never seen it where people aren't blessed who are generous. Why? Because at we give and we offer. We give Him thanks in that regard for His goodness and faithfulness. And within that, it's no different. Do you realize one of my favorite things that you find when you look at the, at the New Testament? Jesus always honors whatever faith the people bring. Here's my point. Remember the father that came to Jesus and he says, can you heal my son? Does that sound like a very small faith? He's actually questioning Jesus' ability. Jesus honored the faith he had. But another time he says, if you, if it would be your will, would you heal? Jesus honored. Jesus always responded to whatever they could offer out of obedience and vulnerability and surrender. That's the point. So how do we get to a point where revival is something that we just live in? The first thing we have to understand is there is a responsibility of brokenness where we will take and we will eat of whatever He provides at any point. We will cry out for more even in the face of feasting in the best that we've ever had. Why? Because brokenness is not about lack. Brokenness is about hunger. And in the midst of that, our, we will allow the tears that say we must have more to become wells and pools. And heaven responds with rain. Why? Because our brokenness, the deep places of us being broken, is what causes heaven to continue to open. I can honestly tell you, I'm living daily the dreams that I've had since I, I remember being four and five years old and dreaming of what we're living right now. And yet, I've also dreamed since then, and I know we want and have to have more. Does that, does that make any sense? And that sounds like I'm saying that we're not grateful. It's the opposite of that. Only in thanksgiving can you rejoice in what He's given and also cry out for more and it be okay. And so we get into this place where we say, Father, we've got to, once again, I, we're going to talk about this, I think, on Sunday. God sends the fire, it's the priests who keep it burning. How do we position our hearts? It's very much in this thing of, it's not just because, the, I've seen people in the absence of God doing anything, where they lack, and they just cry out because God's not doing anything. I've also seen people who, God does something, and next thing you know, they've got a teaching series on how to get God to move, and they've got this, and they've got this, and they've got this, and whatever God does becomes the point. I promise you this. This is, this is one of the most sincere things I've ever said in my life. I told the Lord before this started two years ago, I said, God, if you come again, I will never, ever 
focus on anything else. And I'm going to make sure that we as a house and you as an individual, that every single thing that we do and every single thing that we say never changes the point from we've got to have him. There's no sermon. There's no song. There's no diversity of tongue. There's no prosthemeo. There's no... You can take all the wonderful things that we've learned. None of that is worthy of changing our attention from I've got to have him and I'm never going to change the point. Because I had experienced it in six months' shots. And that wasn't going to do it. Because he would come and we would be thankful for it, but we wouldn't allow it to change what we were doing. We just added it to the list of who we were. He doesn't want to just be another bumper sticker on your car. It has to be where everything we do is translated to. How do we make him the desire? Then, when the next generation comes, our hunger brings breakthrough. Our, our devotion, our brokenness brings breakthrough. And then as a result of that, he comes. And then we allow processes to be put in place so that people can flourish. That's my job, ultimately. My job is not in any way to get up here and speak. My job is to make sure that when I'm in the room, you feel like impossible is possible. My job is to continually remind you and empower you to be able to go where you don't think you can go. That's the point. And in the midst of that miracle kind of thing that he's called us to, this pathway, we actually get to live in a state where hunger is swallowed up in breakthrough and visitation. We then put processes in place to drive people to go deeper, to, the, the, to widen the banks of the river, as it were, only to be followed up by hunger and brokenness again, because nothing else deserves to change the point. Nothing else is worthy of that attention. And as soon as we lose that, as soon as we give that up for insights, revelation, teaching, anything, we've missed it. We've just missed it. And I, we have to be that people that says, if I never get to preach another sermon again, you guys are okay. Because if every week when we show up, he shows up, and he just takes over, and so we go the next six months, and we never preach, that's okay. Do you realize how ludicrous it is that on Easter, seriously, you all are lunatics. I mean, I'm serious, you guys are freaking crazy. Easter? I'm serious. Like trying to walk into the White House with a gun. This doesn't happen. Like this is the day of all days where it's supposed to be form and fashion. And we're on our faces for two hours. Who's the point? Who's the point? Once he comes, everything else gets viewed through those lenses. Okay? Thank you guys for, for sticking sticking with me. We needed this to be able to go where we're going to go uh, over the next couple weeks. So we're going to look on Sunday um, at specifically how we become a people that um, that what we do to sustain the fire, the, the three kind of things that out of the book of Hebrews that we do just really sustain the fire of the Lord and begin to wel- uh, continue to welcome Him. And then we're probably going to go into some fruitfulness stuff. But this is... This is where we have to be. Nothing else matters but us being able to be a people that create an atmosphere that He just wants to keep safe. That's it. Why else do you think Jesus' earthly father was a carpenter? So, Father, we love you. Thank you for wisdom that kicks in and lets me know that I need to shut up. We ask you that you would be with us the rest of, uh, of this week, Father. 
bless each individual. Father, bless their families and the homes that are represented. We thank you for the touch that's starting to, to happen that's flowing through us. That, Father, even now, in the last several weeks, you're bringing this to a point where we're not just experiencing fruit in our hearts, and our lives, but, Father, there's fruit being demonstrated as a result of, of who we are in others. We ask you to allow us to be those that steward you well. Help us, Father, to host who you are well, and that you would reside with us, that you would remain with us, that the fruit that remains that Jesus speaks of would be our heart's cry, and that we would be the ones that would be willing to be broken, that we would sow out of brokenness in tears, knowing that we reap in joy. Father, that we would be those that allow dreaming to be swallowed up by dreaming, and that we would allow hope to be swallowed by hope, and that even in the midst of a great challenge, that we would continue to guard over the thanksgiving of our heart that says we only want you. And in the midst of that, uh, that, that framework, Father, allow the heavens to continue to be open and allow the glory of the Lord, the fountains of the deep in the Spirit, to continue to break forth. And that from heaven to earth, the, the, the ladder of open heaven would just continue to flow. We thank you, Father, for what you're doing. And we love you, but we say we have to have the more of you. We've got to have more. This isn't enough. We're so grateful we didn't know this is even possible, but we've got to have more. We've just got to have more. We thank you, Father, that you want to do this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. God bless everybody. Once again, thank you for, for sticking with us. I know this is a longer uh, sermon, and we try to go on Thursday night, so I appreciate